For part two of our seventh interview, Dr. Joan Petroza chats with Dr. Dan Martin. Sit back, grab a cup of coffee, and enjoy what we think are valuable lessons about our history, sparking innovation, and newer surgical applications of reproductive surgery. So of all the, the surgeons that you met over the years, who were the ones that left the most lasting impression on you? Well, I, I think people like Kurt Sim in Germany, uh, Maurice Bruja, uh, they were just, in terms of just the ability to get the message out and teach people what was going on. Yona Tadir in Israel was the same sort of thing, uh, had a, trained, trained an awful lot of us in terms of how to do it. In terms of just technical aspects, the technicians would be people like Bob Kovac, who was a who was a private who was a private practitioner in St. Louis, who helped, who basically would do seven vaginal hysterectomies a day with repairs, uh, and then he went to Ohio after private practice, and then went from there to become a, to become the head of the uh, uh, gynecologic surgery division at Emory, and. When he was still in Ohio, I used to go up and watch him, not so much to see what he did, but to see how he trained his residents. Ah. I once watched him talk a second year resident through a paravaginal repair that was done better than I had ever seen one done before. And he would just, and he just had a communication skill in terms of communicating with the residents and what they were doing that was I, I never I could never duplicate it. it it's just a, the precision in his words it was just verbal precision oh that's incredible I mean that's that's the sign of a good teacher you know I I, I, I have these vivid memories of, of seeing these pictures of Kurt Sims you know sort of as this I, I you know I never met the man but I sort of envisioned him as sort of being a very you know energetic almost eccentric type of of guy with all these developmental things in his head. Is yes. that how he was? Yes. Uh huh. Wow. Yep. If you could go back and and do something different, is there anything that you would do different? Oh, it's a good good question. But I don't really. I pretty much. I did things as they came along and watched for opportunities. When an opportunity would show up, I would look at it to see what we could do with it. And if, if it was working, we'd continue to work with it. If it didn't, we'd let it go. Uh, I don't think, I can't think of anything that I would have, uh, I can't think of anything that I would have really changed that would have affected where I was going. Uh, I was happy, I, I, never, I never had anything to do with in vitro fertilization. It was never part of my, my, my plan. I, I never got excited about it. Uh, Later in life, I had people ask me if I didn't want to go back and learn to do it. I said, no, I think I'm perfectly fine doing what I do. I was, I was good in surgery. I was happy in surgery. Yeah, yeah. Surgery is a good place for me. Right. I mean, you, you, you really carved out a wonderful niche with endometriosis surgery, you know, and, and endometriosis has been one of these diseases that really has made just very little progress in identifying what causes it. The treatments seem to still be primarily surgical. Medications, even the newer medications are all basically doing the same thing, but just in a different way. Um, there's some, perhaps some newer diagnostic tests coming out, trying to identify without having to do surgery. Where do, where do you envision the world of endometriosis going? 
I think what we're going so let me look at let me look at that from three different aspects, three different parts. One is patients with pain and infiltrating endometriosis. The other is infertility patients with no pain who predominantly have, have, have superficial endometriosis. And the third is that group of patients who are asymptomatic and discovered coincidentally. For the first two groups, for the pain group, I think we are for the time being going to need to stick with what we're doing. And that is do the best we can with what medicines we have and then get ready for surgery for the rest of them. For infertility, I think IVF is a wonderful answer. And I think Bob Lessing, those groups who are looking at inflammatory markers in endometrium, if they're correct, then for endometriosis, where there's a positive inflammatory marker in the endometrium, it may be that it appears from that and also some Cameron Najat, some others who have looked at that, that treating them either surgically or with uh, GNRH analogs may give them a good, uh, a, a good outcome and given that they were using two months of a Lupron type medication compared with laparoscopic surgery, other than a few people who, who get, I, in, my, in my practice, Lupron was an easy thing to use because patients and I talked about the side effects and if they started developing side effects, we got away from it. So all these really bad horror stories I hear about people on Lupron, just, I didn't see those. I saw people, the, the worst things I had were some joint problems where we'd have patients who'd have joint disease that would go on for several months after we stopped it. But I didn't see these uh, major immunologic disturbances that people are talking about or chronic problems related to it. Uh, so if it were me, and I were given the choice of having a laparoscope or two months of a Lupron or, or in this day and time, a GNRH, uh, one of the uh, analogs, one of the uh, antagonists, if I had my choice of those, I would, I would take the GNRH over surgery any day. My, in my practice, I never had a patient die, but I had two who tried to. Uh, I had two friends who had patients who did die. And the two who had patients who did die, one, that they, were, they had patients similar to mine. Yeah. Uh, one of mine had, we'd lice some momental adhesions from off her left at Nexa and she did perfectly fine until four days post-op when she called me up and said that she felt something pop that morning and her belly was getting big and she was getting dizzy. So I told her to get to the emergency room. Next thing I hear is about four hours later, five hours later, when the surgeon who'd operated on her called me up and said they got it and they fixed it and they gave her six or eight units of blood. What she'd done was had a delayed bleed from the omentum. Mm. So where we had actually taken this thing down off the omentum, and that thing was the best I can It's just four days post-op and she bleeds. In between all of that, though, was the part of the story that just, I'm happy it happened. I'll never understand it. But she started out the door and passed out the door. Didn't make it past the door. And this is about 11 o'clock in the morning, 11, 11.30, something like that. Her husband, who was at work, decided he should go home and check on things. He said that was uncommon for him, but he just said he figured he should go home and check on things. He usually didn't go until five or six o'clock. So he went home at noontime, found her and passed out the door and took her to the emergency room. And the rest of the story was the surgeon did what he should have done and, and, and saved her. Uh, but her, her husband gone home at normal time. I'm not sure she survives that long. Right, right. I'm not sure she's, I mean, or I think her hemoglobin was 4.7 when she went in. Oh, yes, I'm not sure what if she had any hemoglobin, if it had been five or seven o'clock that evening. 
That's right. And the other one was a patient I took care of. It wasn't one of my patients, but I was just, I was with a resident and we were mild case of endometriosis, nothing really going on. And the resident was doing perfectly fine. And all of a sudden the nurse pops in through the door and told me I was needed in room two. She didn't say hello. She didn't, she didn't say anything pleasant. She just told me where I was supposed to go. Uh, the nurses, by that point in time, I was an old man. The nurses always were nice to me. <laughs> they were, they were pleasant. They were, I mean, it was, I was kind of a, a rock star at that point in time. So, so I didn't, I didn't, I didn't stop to ask her. I didn't, I, the way she'd said it, I knew it wasn't even worth asking. I was, I was going. Yeah. All I said on the way out the door to the resident was turn off the, turn off the electrical units. I don't want you to electrocute them while I'm out of the, out, out of here. So I go into room two and somebody doing a tubal ligation and managed to get both the aorta and vena cava. Oh my goodness. And to make it worse, it was retroperitoneal. Oh. So the first person to know it's a problem is anesthesia when she goes into shock. Yeah. So by the time I get in there, they've already opened her and they've done a little mini incision. It's at least a midline incision. I give them that one. They, they make the right incision, did a little small incision to get their hands inside thinking they could do something. I took one look at the incision open it halfway up to her xiphoid uh, because my guess was that bleeder was going to be right directly beneath the insertion site, which is where it was. Yeah. So you need an incision up above the insertion site so you can look down at it. And once I found it, it was easy enough to put my fingers around it and control the bleeding. So I could at least control the bleeding. Yeah. I couldn't stop it. And I was sitting there trying to put simple, I couldn't put, if I put pressure just on the one bleeder, I could see it was bleeding behind it somewhere. Yeah, I mean, they take they got both the error and being a caver, so I was dealing with all sorts of stuff. Oh my goodness! Uh, I had written about six months earlier. Someone who's a really good surgeon had had a similar, but much less, uh, much less uh, uh, impressive case where they he had opened her up and controlled it by putting his hand on putting putting one hand on it or putting a finger on it and controlled the bleeder until a vascular surgeon got in and sewed it up. Didn't require blood transfusions or anything. It was a it was a it was a vascular case, but it wasn't a very uh, it wasn't a dangerous vascular case, other than the fact they are all dangerous. Uh, but but six months earlier, we'd written a protocol on exactly what happens if this ever happens again. We were smart enough to know that this might happen again. Yeah. So we had a protocol for it. And by the time I get in there, I knew we had already activated the protocol. I did. I think I'd asked to make sure and ask if they knew who was coming in, and it was Rodney Wolf was coming in. And I didn't realize Rodney was going to bring in Larry Burke. So we had two cardiovascular surgeons on their way. Uh, and, and I'd worked with both of them in the past on, on, on other things, mostly committee work, never in surgery. But <laughs> these, were, these, were, these, were, these were two of the best vascular surgeons. And we have a heart transplant. So we have a heart transplant unit there. Yeah. And these are the guys who were on that transplant. These guys are heart transplant surgeons. So pretty skilled. Pretty, so skilled. pretty skilled. Pretty skilled people. So yeah. I've got them coming in. And all I'm doing is trying to get this thing under control. I mean, in the meantime, I'm sitting there, how am I going to get this under control? And part of the protocol is we have a vascular clamp designed to come across the aorta. And I know that the trains, the dangers of this, putting it up that high are you've got to worry about where the renal artery is. Yeah. Because you don't want to take out the renal artery when you throw the clamp down. Right. So here I am, and I'm sitting there looking at it, doing all I can to identify as many things as I can. <laughs> now, all this is going on, and they're doing chest compressions, right? Ugh. So I get chest compressions going on while I'm operating and I look up at anesthesia and I said, quit compressing. And I put the clamp on and that stopped the bleeding. And I looked around and now I know we got control of the bleeding, bleeding stopped. 
I hope that I haven't get picked off the renal arteries. I don't think I have, but I don't don't know. And and I'm going to wait and see how long is it going to take us to get the vascular surgeons in. And we don't have the vascular equipment. So when's the vascular equipment going to come in? And as it is, the vascular equipment gets there before the surgeons do, but only by about a minute or two. So the, we have four table, four, uh, four containers of vascular equipment coming through one door, coming through right behind that was Rodney Wolf and coming through the other door was Larry Burke. <laughs> So all I did was sign off to Rodney, tell him what I'd done, told him, told him where I put the clamp, what I was hoping it was going to be okay, and went back to my room. The to oh, by anesthesia, because they're timing all this thing in my room, by anesthesia, I was out of the room for 20 minutes. So all of this happened. So we this by the time they pulled me out of my room before I signed this thing out to vascular surgeons, it's 20 minutes. It was, had it not been for that case six months earlier, that doesn't happen either. Yeah. So the two times, the two times that, that I had cases where might might not have gone well, we were ready for. Yeah. I had a friend who had a similar case where an ovarian pedicle started bleeding three or four days post-op and she died. And another one who managed to put the trocar through the vena cava and or the aorta and they lost her on the table. Uh, so back to the back to where all this stuff started. If I had a choice between being on two months of Lupron or going through a laparoscopy, I take two months on Lupron. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. And, and so, so that would that would be the medical aspects of doing infertility. The third group is the one I, I what I hope is the third group means something. So that third group of asymptomatic patients who are asymptomatic and found incidentally, when Fluentes did that review about three or four six years ago of sixteen different studies. If you sub, if you put that group, so in that whole group, he had a 6.7% prevalence of endometriosis found incidentally. If you looked at that in, in patients who the study was focused enough to know if they were asymptomatic or not, it was 16%. And if it was not that focused, it was, only, it was 4%. So the more someone looked at the, so the closer someone looked at the patients, the higher the prevalence was, which goes along with a lot of studies. They found that when they did a retrospective analysis at the Mayo Clinic, their prevalence was about 7%, but when they did it prospectively and looked for it, it was around 50%. Okay. So retrospective series of endometriosis and big data on endometriosis grossly underestimates everything that goes on. So if we, if we can anticipate that that 16% in the eight studies that looked at that is meaningful, that means we have more incidental endometriosis than we do symptomatic endometriosis. Yeah. That suggests that the immune system or apoptosis or in some other clearance form, something is going on in that group of patients. If we can harness those and we harness it early enough, we might be able to decrease the amount of surgery that we need and the number of patients who need IVF for their pregnancies. And if we can do that, it may be that, that doing that is a matter of keeping stress under control, keeping pain under control, keeping hormones under control. And there are lots of different companies coming out with multiple different medications that are designed to attack at several different attack points, not just the estrogens, but also a lot of inflammatory pathways. No, I totally agree. I know that um, we, we've been in, in negotiations with Faring where they're working on a um, um, a non-ergot dopamine agonist to treat endometriosis, which is fascinating, right? So this is, it's, 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 
I guess technically it's a hormone, but it's a hormone that's not going to necessarily interfere with the ability for someone to get pregnant, like sure. the GnRH agonist and the antagonist do. So this this is fascinating. If this has worked and, and, and the studies look promising in Europe, what a, what a phenomenal tool to have in your toolbox to perhaps treat some of these patients with. Yes. So, so we have a few more minutes, Dan. I just want to sort of get into just a, a, a few things. Um, you know, reproductive surgery is something that I'm, I'm interested in, and I'm the past president for the Society for Reproductive Surgeons. And, you know, we've started this year, this surgical track, which I think is just the first of many tracks that will happen within this, this specialty of reproductive endocrine. I think we'll see genetics tracking. I think we'll see a specific track for IVF. We'll see a track for surgery. We'll see a track for other things. Um, what advice would you have for those residents who like the concept of infertility, but want to operate, but now are feeling compelled that if they want to operate, they're going to have to go maybe into a MIGS fellowship instead of a REI fellowship. Do you think there's an opportunity for them to operate in the field of REI? I think that's good. We have, we have reproductive endocrinologists who are, who are part of all the programs, who are part of all the surgery programs now. So there's obviously there's obviously a place for them. I I think the it's hard for me to know how surgery is going to compete with IVF monetarily in terms of the reimbursements for it. Yeah, and I think that's going to be the hardest part to do because it's 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 uh, if if you look at at the AAMC reimbursement rates for gynecologists versus uh, rep- versus uh, REIs, REIs generally reimbursed by the AEMC at about 50 to 80% more. Yeah. And in private, and in private practice, the, the, it's, it's significantly higher than that. Yeah. The, the, the other issue is going to be is, is how, do they, how do they get people to refer patients to them? Uh, I was lucky in developing my referral populations because nobody wanted to compete with me. I was taking care of the pain patients. Uh, pain patients are difficult people to, to learn to take care of. And, and it's, it's, uh, it's, hard, it's hard sometimes to develop a pain protocol that works. So the bigger issue on, in, terms of, in terms of being an REI and a surgeon at the same time is how are you gonna work those pelvic pain patients into your population so that you can get the referrals, because I doubt people are going to refer their infertility patients to you for surgery. Uh, it's more likely they'll refer pain patients to a pain surgeon. I, th- I, th- it's if, uh, I think if somebody's interested in managing pain, then endometriosis surgery is a good place to be. Uh, no, it's, I, it's I, going to be difficult to stay away from pain populations if you're going to do that type of surgery. You're, you're absolutely right. And when I got out of my fellowship, I opened up a pain clinic at Mass General. And it was tough. It was tough because you, you, you don't necessarily have people jumping up and down wanting to support you because it typically doesn't make a lot of money. You're trying to hold on to staff who are dealing with phone calls all the time about pain medications. And you're, you know, back then we were giving more pain medicine than we are now. So we were doing pill counts and having to work with anesthesia and the pain service and urology because we were dealing with a lot of um, painful bladder syndrome, interstitial cystitis, um, you name it, myofascial pain. So it, it's very, very difficult. No question about it. 
Um, and there's no doubt that from a reimbursement standpoint, those REIs that do IVF make more. But as, as you know, speaking as a reproductive surgeon, um, my, my payments in the fact that I think I have a more, <laughs> I, I have more peace with myself because my, my fun time is in the OR, yeah. right? I can, I, can, I can suck eggs all, all I want all the time. Um, but sort of that controlled fear I get every Friday when I go into the OR, thinking that I planned as well as I can plan, but not knowing what I'm going to see until I finally put that scope in and see what I think I'm going to see is, is exhilarating to me. And as I'm sure it was exhilarating to you, right? And, yes. and the immediate gratification that you had when you took out pathology and you knew that patient's going to get better is, is second to none. And I think what we're trying to do with these, these, these videos um, and these webinars is really to tell residents, listen, this is, this is fun. This is part of REI. If you want to make money, sure, you can make money and you can go into private practice. But if you, well, if you want a well-rounded REI life, there are opportunities to do a little bit of both. Um, so hopefully we'll be successful. T time will tell, Dan. Time, time will tell. Oh, and, and, and the reality is REI made more than I did, but I've, I made plenty of money. Yeah, exactly. It's not what you make, it's what you spend. Exactly, exactly. Oh. As, as we get to our final few minutes, what, what would you say is the legacy you're leaving in the world of reproductive surgery? Well, I'm just happy that a lot of the things that I published in the 1980s are still functional today. A lot of stuff on recognition slides that I did in the 1980s are still used today. I see some of my slides and presentations all the time. Back in the 80s, we had 35. Uh, uh, Melvin Cohen in Chicago, who's about 20, 30 years older than me, had a collection of about 35,000 or so patient, 35,000 or so, 35 millimeter pictures that he'd taken on his patients through the years and taught lots of us on how to do that. So I was trained in use, using 35 millimeter photography. And on 35 millimeter, you could take pictures and come back and look at them at much higher resolution than you could see them during surgery. So during surgery, I was able to see endometriotic lesions as small as 200 microns. But on the 35 millimeter films, we could resolve that picture down and see some little 90 micron satellites that were sitting within two or three millimeters of them. So we had, we had things that we could do at that point in time. So a lot of that has continued on. Uh, the five millimeter depth of uh, depth for deep was based with that. If you ever go back to the original thing that used that definition, they, they referenced 11 articles, six of theirs, uh, four of mine and one of uh, Rob Jansen's because we'd already done the five millimeter thing as a theoretical limit, but not as a definition limit. Yeah. Because we pretty much decided that if it was greater than two millimeters, you had to use something that could, uh, that could uh, go deeper than two millimeters and vaporization could be tried for two or three or four. But once you got to five millimeters, it was just about the only thing that seemed to work at that point in time was excision yeah. to be able to get to that depth. So there, there's some little things I did then. I think the biggest one was that we talked about lasers earlier. One thing that lasers did was delimit knowledge. Prior to lasers, we all knew that we couldn't do a lot of the surgery that we're going to do. 
And I'll come back to general surgeons in a second for as an example of that. But once we had lasers, there was nobody who could tell us what we could and couldn't do with the laser. So we, we were pretty much wide open in terms of what we wanted to try. And all we needed was someone else to sit back and say they'd done it first so that I didn't have to tell my, my uh, OR committee that I was going to do something for the first time in the world. Uh, they didn't like the first time in the world. They wanted to know somebody else was doing it. And Jim Daniels, who was up at Vanderbilt at that point in time, he and I did research together for, for years. He would always want to be the first one to do it. And I'd want to be the one who put p-values on it. And I think that that's one of the reasons that it took general surgeons so long to learn to do uh, cholecystectomies with basic electrosurgical equipment is because they didn't think you, should, you could do it with that. Or, or they, if you could do it with that, they'd have already done it. So when, the, so when YAG lasers come along and they all learn how to use YAG lasers as an, excis as an excisional technique, they've all got to have YAG lasers. Interestingly enough, Memphis was one of the last large towns, small cities to actually convert. Atlanta had Atlanta was two years ahead of us. Uh, Jackson, Mississippi was a year and a half ahead of us. So by the time we start doing these in Memphis, the general surgeons want to buy a brand new YAG laser so they can do this. By then, I'd already talked to Randy Bulls in, in Jackson and my brother in, in Atlanta, both of whom who said, yeah, they spent all these money on lasers, but nobody used them anymore. They'd all gone to electrosurgical techniques. So we had an old, old, old YAG laser that was perfectly capable. It was a big thing. It, it was probably, it must have been five, five, 10 feet across and eight or 10 oh feet tall, <laughs> about four feet tall. But what we did was we agreed with all the general surgeons that we trained them all on both the YAG laser and on the, uh, on micro, on the uh, electrosurgical techniques that were being used then. And if they really did, if they really, if, if after they got used to them, if they really used the YAG laser more than they used using electrosurgical techniques, we get them a new laser. I was, by that point in time, I'm on a committee at the hospital that's capable of saying things like this to general surgeons, which if you've been around general surgeons who don't like people in their turf, you understand that's, what that meant. That's, that's I, had a lot, true. I had a lot of people who were, who were behind me before I could say <laughs> that kind of thing. So I got, I got, uh, I got, uh, certified as a certified food inspector or meat inspector, whatever it was, because we would pick up the combined liver gallbladder units from one of the local slaughterhouses. And the only people who could touch those had to be licensed meat inspectors. So I had to be an FDA, I had to be an FDA <laughs> licensed person to be able to get those units. So we trained them all on both. And over the next, next year and the next 20 years for that matter, Nobody ever used the YAG laser on a patient. Everybody learned to use the other one because after we told them this, they went back and talked to all their friends who'd been doing it and all their friends told them the same thing. Stay away from the YAG laser. You don't yeah. want the whole one. So buy them a new YAG laser. Well, that's funny. That's funny. But lasers did delimit things and the same thing happened in gynecology. So I learned to do every, all this stuff with lasers. And then in the 1990s, when the hospitals start taking over from physicians. So through about 1992, I did all my surgery in one of two operating rooms on the same floor, the same hospital forever. And because that, that, that floor also functioned as the outpatient surgery center. So we had an outpatient unit who would send patients to the main ORs and then send them back down to the outpatient unit. So all of my surgery was there until about 1992. And all of a sudden the hot, you couldn't, uh, and I would bring patients from any insurance company anywhere into that unit. By 1992, 94, the, the insurance companies are getting 
preferred providers, preferred hospitals. So we have to be ready to go to different hospitals so that by the end of the 90s, I'm working in five different hospitals and two different surgery centers. You can't keep a laser unit open if you're doing that. Yeah. You have to, the laser unit that we had was tightly controlled. It worked well. Uh, the lasers were always functioning. They were aligned. They were doing all the things they're supposed to do. When we start having to do them just everywhere, then the amount of surgery was too diffusely scattered for anybody to get really good with it. So I went back to basic electrosurgical instruments okay. like everybody else, and, and that was the end of it. So, so for me, lasers were good for delimiting knowledge and, and learning things, but after that, we let them go. Yeah, gotcha. Well, listen, we are, we are at the hour. That's plenty, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, Dan. I, I appreciate it. This is quite an honor having an hour just to sit down and talk with you. I, I truly appreciate it. Um, I, I do hope that you'll continue to be involved with, with us, with the Society for Reproductive Surgeons. We, we value these relationships. And you know, as we get our surgical track up and running, this is a, a pilot year for us. We have four programs. Um, I don't know if you know that. So we have, we have Mayo, Hopkins, my institution, Mass General, and we have University Hospital. Then we're bringing in Brigham and Women's Hospital and University of South Florida next year. And then we have two other programs probably coming in after that. This is all sort of tracking fellows who want to operate. So we're, we're, we're beside ourselves. We have a, a program, we have a curriculum. Um, I am sure we'll invite you to come and give us a talk about endometriosis at some point um, to those fellows, if you don't mind. Love to. Wonderful. Well, thank you. Have, have a good evening. You too, John. Thank you. All right. Take care now. Bye. Bye-bye.